This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. It's Sunday, March 10th. I'm Margaret Brennan, and this is Face the Nation. They're off and running in campaign 2020. This campaign, with your help, is about transforming this country and creating an economy and a government that works for all, not just the 1%. So what's different about this field from years past? I always like to jokingly say, may the best woman win. And why have some ideological differences become dirty words for Democrats? So in these questions of capitalist versus socialist, we put you down as a capitalist. Put me down as a capitalist. So if you get labeled as a socialist... Well, it's just wrong. Would you call yourself a proud capitalist? (laughs) Oh, I don't know. You know, again, the labels, I'm not sure uh, any of them fit. Our Ed O'Keefe asked Massachusetts Senator Elizabeth Warren about her proposal to break up big technology companies. And we'll also hear from another 2020 candidate, former Colorado Governor John Hickenlooper. And as Washington awaits developments in the investigations into the Trump administration and the 2016 campaign, the president's former personal attorney, Michael Cohen, defends himself against accusations that he had lied to Congress for a second time. I have never asked for, nor would I accept, a pardon from President Trump. Michael Cohen lied about the pardon. I was a stone-cold lie. The president later tweeted that Cohen, quote, directly asked me for a pardon. I said no. We'll talk to former acting FBI director Andrew McCabe and a key presidential defender on the Senate Judiciary Committee, Louisiana's John Kennedy. Plus, we'll have analysis on all the news of the week coming up on Face the Nation. Good morning and welcome to Face the Nation. We begin this morning with the already packed field of potential candidates for 2020. And there are signs that former Vice President Joe Biden is planning to enter the race next month. A new poll out this morning shows him leading in Iowa with Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders close behind. A handful of those candidates appeared over the weekend at the South by Southwest Festival in Austin. CBS News political correspondent Ed O'Keefe caught up with one of the big names in the race, Massachusetts Senator Elizabeth Warren, and asked about her new proposal to break up tech companies like Amazon, Apple, Google, and Facebook. The giant tech companies right now are eating up little tiny businesses, startups, uh, and competing unfairly. Look at it this way. Someone like Amazon runs a platform, you know, the place where you buy your coffee maker and get it delivered in 48 hours, and that's great. But in addition to that, 
they're sucking up all that information about every purchase, every sale, and every one of the other little businesses that are offering their products on Amazon. And when Amazon sees one that's profitable, they say, hmm, think we'll go into business against them now that they've got all this extra information. And they put their own business out there to compete on selling coffee makers, put themselves on page one, put the competitor back on page six, and the competitor's business is just gone. So what I'm saying is we've got to break these guys apart. You want to run a platform? That's fine. You don't get to run a whole bunch of the businesses as well. You want to run a business? That's fine. You don't get to run the platform. Think of it this way. It's like in baseball. You can be the umpire or you can own one of the teams, but you don't get to be the umpire and own the teams. And let me just get this clear. In, if you had your way, Facebook would have to sell off Instagram. Mm -hmm. Amazon would have to sell off Whole Foods. All those little businesses that they're running, competing businesses. Yep. I, I, who, who is the federal government to tell these companies they have to do that? Uh, there's antitrust law that's been around for more than 100 years. And the federal government has done this many times. For example, broke up Standard Oil, uh, broke up the, the uh, great monopolies of the late 19th century and early 20th century. And the reason for that is so that we can keep a competitive economy. This idea has gotten a lot of criticism. From? Howard Schultz, the guy who's yeah. thinking about running as an independent. A billionaire, Yes, right? um, uh -huh. and he, he suggested that your proposal is, quote, inconsistent with our free enterprise system and said that it's emblematic of Democrats proposing, his word, fantasy ideas that will never be implemented. And that instead, perhaps you could just find ways to discuss with these companies ways to make it more competitive. You mean we could ask these multi-billion dollar companies nicely if they would not eat up the competition and um, just behave better in the marketplace? Really? We've had laws around against antitrust activity and predatory pricing for over a hundred years because we understand that the way markets work are when there's real competition in that market. And you know that this uh, kind of proposal feeds into the arguments that Republicans have been making to label Democrats as anti-capitalist, adopting these socialist ideas. The reality is it is not capitalism to have one giant that comes in and dominates, a monopolist that dominates a market. What I have supported all the way through are the kinds of things that help level the playing field. So I think a level playing field says that the big guys have to pay kind of like everybody else does and they have to pay to help create some opportunities. For them. But you know you're getting labeled uh, and you're getting coupled in with a few of your other democratic contenders as someone who is, supports socialist ideas. Can we, do we describe you as a capitalist? What's the best way yeah. to describe you? I believe in markets. Markets that work, markets that have a cop on the beat and have real rules and everybody follows them. I believe in a level playing field. So if you get labeled as a socialist... Well, it's just wrong. Silicon Valley has obviously been a reliable source of democratic financial support, uh, especially in recent cycles. Given this proposal, um, are you going to decline financial support from tech executives or tech employees if they decide to get your campaign? <laughs> Look, nobody's been beaten down the door, but let me be clear. I'm not in Washington to work for billionaires. I'm in Washington to help level the playing field. 
so that everybody gets a chance to get out there and compete. Right now, with giants like Amazon and and Google and Facebook, do you know how venture capitals talk about the space around them? They call it the kill zone because they don't want to fund businesses in that space because they know Amazon will eat them up, Facebook will eat them up, Google will eat them up. We need a chance for every one of the young people in that room to thrive, to get their idea out there. And if it turns out to be the next Google, good for them. You said nobody's beaten down the door. How is fundraising going for you? Uh, as far as I know, it's going great. You know, it's a lot of small dollar fundraisers. And here's been the fun part. I've actually been calling people who donated $25, $5, $50, $10, and had some great conversations with folks. I get a chance to ask them, why you gotten, what, what pulled you into this? And people talk about the things that matter most to them. The House this past week had to vote on a resolution condemning hate of all sorts because of what one congresswoman had said, Ilhan Omar of Minnesota. I want to talk about the political influence in this country that says it is okay for people to push for allegiance to a foreign country. There are many considered it anti-Semitic, others said it's being misinterpreted. What's your view on what she said? Look, my view is that we condemn anti-Semitism and Islamophobia wherever it appears. We are a democracy, and in a democracy, we have to talk about our differences. Uh, we need to do so with respect, uh, but ultimately, we need to hammer out the best policies for this country, and that means a lot of frank and full discussion. Was she unfairly targeted? Look, right now what we've got is a condemnation of anti-Semitism and Islamophobia uh, and other forms of hatred. Hatred is not how we build a democratic dialogue. Ed's full interview with Senator Warren is available on our website, facethenation.com. Now, the latest candidate to enter the race to beat President Trump is former Colorado Governor John Hickenlooper. He announced his candidacy Thursday. I'm not the first person in the race or the most well-known person in the race. But let me tell you, at four syllables and 12 letters, Hickenlooper is now the biggest name in the race. And now the biggest name in the race joins us live from Austin. Uh, Governor, <laughs> welcome to Face the Nation. Thanks for having me on. Is it a good idea to do what Senator Warren is advocating there with breaking up big tech companies? Well, I think you've got to look at the, the environment and, and how the system is working. And for, you know, for several decades now, increasingly, uh, people in the middle class and poor people in this country haven't had the security and opportunity that our economic system used to create for them. So what is the reason why we're seeing such a large number, uh, a decline in the number of startups, people starting businesses? And maybe some of that is due to these large companies that, you know, usually when someone's going to start a business, they're already a successful employee somewhere. Maybe they're looking at that landscape and saying, ah, these companies are too big, I can't get in. And I think that's one of the arguments that she's trying to make. Uh, we have to make sure that we have a competitive system whereby little guys feel they've got an honest, a decent chance to succeed. So you do think tech companies have too much influence over the economy? 
No, I'm, what I'm saying is that they are, uh, in many circumstances, becoming so large that they make it harder for small companies to compete. I'm not, again, to make a blanket statement about all tech companies, you know, they're too big, uh, I think that would be a, a little bit over going too far. But I do think it's legitimate to say, how do we make sure that we have more competition in such a way that we encourage you know, people to start their own businesses? That's where job creation happens, is, is when you get small businesses. You know, people like me, I got laid off, and I ended up starting first one restaurant company, then another restaurant company, then you know, I took old warehouses and turned them into loft projects. But we created thousands of jobs in that process, and we're able to you know, stimulate a whole part of Denver and, and other you know, cities and towns across the Midwest that's what drives this country and always has. And, and we're seeing a decline in the number of people willing to start up businesses. Well, I, I want to offer you the chance to clear something up here, because you did an interview earlier in the week where you were asked three times if you would call yourself a proud <laughs> capitalist. And you wouldn't directly answer the question. Uh, it led Howard Schultz, uh, who's possibly a candidate, to say, if even a successful businessman and entrepreneur like Governor Hickenlooper can't openly support capitalism in the Democratic primary, it's clear this is Senator Sanders' party now. Why are you uncomfortable calling yourself a proud capitalist? Well, I've been, uh, the point I was making is that we define people by these labels that, that often have all kinds of associations and baggage with them. Uh, in that sense. Do I believe in small business? Of course I believe in small business. I started probably more than 20 different small businesses. Uh, I'd have, you know, in, a, in, in one year I'd have over a million customers. I understand that, but what's happening? I think it's kind of a silly question. We should be looking at some of the reasons be, behind why we have less and less startups. We should look sure. at some of the reasons why, you know, more and more people aren't wanting to start a business. Sure, but you understand that but, it is a, a main Republican talking point to label Democrats right now as anti-business socialists. <laughs> right, but that's ridiculous. Obviously, so you there are, would reject the that. Democratic you are, Party is a big tent. You reject that label. Yes, absolutely. I think that's uh, not accurate, and I think that. As your interview with Elizabeth Warren showed, there are all kinds of, of, of different people making up the Democratic Party. Do I believe in, in free markets? Do I believe that you, know, you put capital to work uh, to, to create jobs and, and improve your community? You know, back when I was a kid, businesses understood that part of their job wasn't just to make as much profit as they could, but it was to c create the community. Once you get back into these labels, Am I a capitalist? Am I a socialist? How much of how much of a capitalist yeah. am I versus how much of a socialist? It becomes kind of silly, doesn't it? Well, I mean, in a funny if way, you're, the other candidates were comfortable you know, answering the question. So I wanted to offer you a chance to to answer. I understand you're not comfortable directly answering, I, 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 but I, I want to move on to well, I'm, some I'm comfortable. I, I'm happy. Go ahead. Let me just I'm happy to say I'm a capitalist, but I think at a, at a certain point, the labels do nothing but divide us. Okay. And what I'm trying to build this campaign around is to say that, that as a country, we've got to stop finding every excuse to divide ourselves Point taken. and begin working together because we've got some big issues to make. Point taken. Uh, in terms of your platform, uh, I understand you support universal health care, not necessarily Medicaid for all, Medicare for all. You've supported some free trade deals in the past like NAFTA. You've touted your executive experience in a field full of legislators here. You don't like labels, but you sound like more of a centrist. Um, how do you keep the Democratic Party from splintering further? Well, trying by trying to avoid these all the labeling that goes on. You know, I, I mean, I'm running for president because 
I believe I can beat Donald Trump, but I also believe I can bring us together on the other side and begin getting stuff done. And that's one thing I think that I bring to the table is I'm a doer. I'm not someone who's, I mean, I'm a dreamer too, and I, I believe in big visions. We've done some amazing things in Colorado. I mean, we've almost got universal health care mm-hmm. coverage in Colorado now. Uh, we've addressed some of the biggest uh, root causes of, of climate change. Uh, we've taken this, our economy from 40th in job creation to being the number one economy in the country for the last mm-hmm. couple of years. Uh, those are things that I think should be models on who the next, you know, what the next president needs to be able to demonstrate, that they can do things. Right. Well, Governor, thank you very much for joining us. We'll be tracking the race and we will be back with a lot more Face the Nation. Former acting FBI director Andrew McCabe standing by. I used to think that all diet and weight loss plans were the same. Well, not anymore, because I found Noom. Noom is a new and totally different approach to losing weight and getting healthy that uses psychology and small goals to help change your habits. So it's easy to lose the weight and keep it off for good. Noom combines the power of technology with real human support, offering as little or as much help as you want along the way. And since Noom is an app, it's always with you and easy to use, which makes it super easy to stay on track and reach your goals. Plus, it's really simple to get started. Just go online, answer a few quick questions, and they'll create a personalized program just for you. Noom helped me lose my old way of thinking about food and dieting. So what do you have to lose? Visit Noom.com slash podcast, N-O-O-M dot slash podcast, and start your 14-day trial today. Like they say, change your habits, change your mind, and change for good with Noom. We're back with former acting FBI director Andrew McCabe. He's the author of a new book, The Threat, How the FBI Protects America in the Age of Terror and Trump. Good to have you here. Thanks so much for having me. Start you off on some of the news of the week. Former Trump campaign chairman uh, Paul Manafort was sentenced uh, this week. He will also face sentencing in a D.C. court uh, in the days to come. He was given 47 months. Uh, far less than what is the uh, sentencing guideline of up to 20-plus years. Is the length of time he will serve matching the crimes he's being accused of? Well, I was really surprised by the sentence he was given. I think it's an uh, incredibly lenient sentence in light not just of the uh, of the offenses he was convicted for, but the additional offenses that he has pled guilty to uh, in D.C. and uh, the offenses he's acknowledged essentially in the sentencing process in Virginia that he's uh, res- uh, responsible for. So like most people, I was shocked by how lenient the sentence was. So it sounds like you're predicting that the D.C. court may add to those 47 months. Well, there's no question he's going to get additional time from D.C. I don't think it's probably the... Um, the job of the D.C. courts to rectify a mistake or, or something that was done uh, in another jurisdiction. I'm sure that Judge Jackson will approach her sentence um, with just keeping her eye on the facts of that case. Um, but there's no doubt he'll get additional time from that process. Uh, in your book, The Threat, you write about uh, some of the president's public comments about Paul Manafort mm-hmm. in particular, and you frame it in one passage as possible witness tampering. You say you fear a judge will be influenced 
um, by some of the, pu- the president's comments. Did you have any sense that that's what happened here with Judge Ellis? I don't. I don't. But the point that I try to make in the book is that is to try to highlight how incredibly irresponsible and indeed corrosive statements like that from the chief executive are on the process and on the public's perception of the fairness and the effectiveness of the process. When the president engages in messaging like that, people can't help but step back and ask themselves that question that you just asked. Did that happen? have an impact on the process or on the result in this case. We don't know the answer to that, but it introduces a level of doubt um, and insecurity into a system that we all need to depend on, depend upon to being fair and, and free. The charges that Paul Manafort faced uh, were in regard to financial crimes. Uh, do you believe that he was a Russian asset? I don't know the answer to that. Um, I think that Mr. Manafort's extensive involvement with Ukrainian and Russian actors is highly uh, uh, suspicious. I think that that's something that we'll wait to see what the Mueller team opines on with their uh, with their final conclusions. Because the president seized on a comment made by Judge Ellis, who seemed to be just pointing out that the Russian uh, potential links were not actually part of the trial that we right. have seen underway here. Um, so you're saying there the president's comments were not actually accurate. Well, that that shouldn't be a surprise. Um, I think that Judge Ellis was very careful to indicate that he was sentencing uh, Mr. Manafort for the conduct that was before him. And he, Mr. Manafort, was not charged in that case with being an agent for the government of Russia. So I think I think um, Judge Ellis's efforts to be careful and tailor his words are far from an exoneration of Mr. Manafort on any other potential charges. I want to ask you as well about Michael Cohen, the president's longtime attorney. Uh, and we played in the open some of the, the tape showing the changing stories here in regard to right. whether there was discussion or not of a presidential pardon. Um, now, it appears, according to the president, that it was discussed. As an investigator, what do you make of that? Very, very hard to sort through a basically he said he said argument between two people who have very challenged credibility. At the end of the day, uh, the strength of Michael Cohen's testimony, potential testimony, is derived not from what he's telling us now, but rather from whatever facts and corroborative evidence the prosecutors were able to glean from that treasure trove of documents and recordings and other things that we've heard so much about. You're saying don't take him at his word. Take him by the evidence he presents. That's right. Um, I want to ask you as well, because, uh, of course, the president constantly mentions the credibility that you have and calls that into question, specifically on uh, the text between Lisa Page and Peter Strzok, which is something the president often comments on. You were asked about this on CNN by Anderson Cooper, um, and you said you had no recollection of the meeting that was referred to in one of the text exchange between those two individuals, which mentioned an insurance policy in case Trump got elected. Do you know why you were personally mentioned in those texts? I don't. Um, Lisa Page, Pete Strzok and I and many other members of that investigative team met in my office and conference rooms around FBI headquarters all the time, right? So it was a it was a v- uh, intensive investigation that required um, a lot of attention and a lot of involvement. Uh, so I can't sit here and tell you years later it, the circumstances of exactly that instance that they seem to be referring to uh, in that text. I also wasn't a, a participant in that text, so I can't add too much more to 
your understanding of it. I know that Peter has described in his own congressional testimony what he was referring to, and I take him at his word for that description. Because the the chairman of the Senate Judiciary Committee, Lindsey Graham, has been on this program, specifically referred to those texts and said that it is proof that you, along with Strzok and Page, showed political bias and a political agenda, and that's why he wants to call you uh, before the committee to ask to answer some questions. So one of the other texts there was a quote that said, we need to open the case we've been waiting on now while Andy is acting. You, while you were acting FBI director. Do you know what case this is? Why would it matter that you were in that acting role? Well, again, I, I can't tell you what Lisa and Pete were referring to in their private texts. Um, I think I've been very clear publicly about how the investigators felt about the work that we mm-hmm. needed to do in May of 2017 after Director Comey was fired. They made a recommendation to me that we open cases. I acted on that recommendation. I was feeling, I felt very strongly at that time that I needed to make those decisions quickly because mm-hmm. I anticipated I would not be in the acting role for very long and I didn't know who would be coming in behind me or how they would handle the ongoing investigation that we thought was important to conclude. Thank you very much. Sure. Mr. McKay, we'll be back in a moment for some Republican reaction. Are you having trouble sleeping? NFL players have been coached. Blue light from smart devices, it can affect your sleep. They'll even wear blue blocker glasses in the evening for improved sleep. Others will try tart cherry juice and smoothies. Not only can it help fight inflammation, but to help you sleep, it's got high amounts of natural melatonin that's beneficial for sleep. The other night, my girlfriend told me I was snoring way too much and even the earplugs weren't helping. So the next day, she took me to the Sleep Number store because if I was snoring, at least she could get a good night's sleep on a Sleep Number bed. Sleep Number beds allow you to adjust on each side to your ideal firmness, comfort, and support. The Sleep Number 360 smart bed senses your movement and automatically adjusts to keep you sleeping comfortably through the night. With Sleep IQ technology inside the bed, it tracks how you're sleeping so you can know every morning how well you've slept and gain insights for your best sleep. Experience the smart, effortless comfort of the Sleep Number 360 smart bed. Find your competitive edge with proven quality sleep from $999. Sleep Number is the official sleep and wellness partner of the NFL. You'll only find Sleep Number at one of their 575 Sleep Number stores nationwide. Find the one nearest you at sleepnumber.com slash cadence. That's sleepnumber.com slash C-A-D-E-N-C-E. Sleep Number. We go now to Louisiana Republican Senator John Kennedy, who is in New Orleans this morning. Senator, I want to give you a chance to respond to Andy McCabe. Let me say first, Margaret, I'm, I'm, I'm still in a bit of a stupor at Mayor Hickenlooper's uh, shame at having once been a capitalist. I, I can't. I've seen it all now. But I'll save that for another day. Mr. McCabe. Uh, Mr. McCabe is one of the people responsible for politicizing the premier law enforcement agency in the history of, of, of uh, the world, the FBI. He's not the only one, but it's clear that he and others in 2016, some were for Trump, some were for Clinton, but, but they acted on their political beliefs, and they hurt the FBI badly for that, all of them. We got uh, not just Mr. McKay, but all of them we should hang their head in shame and, and hang their head, put their head in a bag. Senator, this needs more conversation. We're going to take a quick break. I want to talk to you more about this in just a moment. We'll be right back with a lot more Face the Nation. Stay with us. 
What's your next adventure? Everyone deserves a chance to do what they love. Pacific Life helps you reach financial goals while you go after your personal ones. Plans change over time and your financial solutions can too. Pacific Life has a variety of financial solutions that can help you complement your life goals and passions while managing the uncertainties. Backed by more than 150 years of experience, you can count on Pacific Life to be there so you can go out and keep living your best life. Pacific Life is one of the most dependable and experienced insurers in the industry and has been named one of the 2019 world's most ethical companies by the Ethisphere Institute. The freedom to go after whatever is next for you? That's the power of Pacific. Ask a financial professional about how Pacific Life can help give you the freedom to do what you love. Or visit www.pacificlife.com. We continue our conversation now with Louisiana Republican Senator John Kennedy. Uh, Senator, uh, before we took this break, you were responding to Andrew McCabe, uh, the former deputy FBI director who has described himself as a lifelong Republican, um, but laid out here Mm -hmm. uh, his deep concern about the president and his actions. Well, let let me say it again. There were and perhaps still are some people at the FBI, one of whom was Mr. McCabe, who helped politicize the agency. Um, when, when an FBI agent knocks at your door, you shouldn't have to worry about whether uh, you're a Democrat or a Republican and whether that makes a difference. And, and Mr. McCabe has helped politicize that agency. And, and that's wrong. He, he really, he should be ashamed and he should hide his head um, in, in a bag. And, and we have got to clean house over there. Clean house. Well, what do you mean he, by that? Mr. Mc, Mr. McCabe, well, let me back up and say this, Margaret. I'm talking about people over there who were both for Trump and for Clinton. Now, they're entitled to have a personal opinion, but they're not entitled to act on it or leave the, the impression that they acted on it. And, and I think McCabe did that. I think he's part of a group over there that think they were, they think they're smarter and more virtuous than the American people. Um, and I think it hurt the FBI badly. Mr. McCabe is also, in, at the present time, playing the role of Huckster. He's trying to, to sell a book. Um, and he was fired for lying to his, his uh, F- fellow FBI agents. Well, now, that, if you and I lie to the FBI, we go to jail. If, you, if, well, if an FBI I think Mr. agent McCabe like was, him lies uh, to the FBI, you get fired. Just, just short of his uh, ability to actually get his pension. Some would say it was politically motivated firing of him. Um, he's lucky he, he's lucky he wasn't prosecuted, Margaret. For what? And I'm not saying this because McCabe is obviously pro-Trump. What I would think he have been prosecuted for? Pro-Clinton. Uh, for perjury. For lying to an FBI agent. He did it repeatedly. Now, if you and I do that, we go to jail. Are you? If he, calling... he just got fired. He was lucky. And, and so I guess this is a preview of the questioning that uh, we will hear of him before the Senate Judiciary Committee, if he is called uh, to testify, as Senator Graham has said. But I want to ask you about, uh, since you sit on mm-hmm. that committee as well, the uh, sentencing we saw this week of a Trump campaign chairman, uh, former Trump campaign chairman, Paul Manafort. Uh, he was charged with mm-hmm. an array of felonies, financial crimes. Federal sentencing guidelines would have had him serving upwards of 20 years. He got 47 months. Does the punishment fit the array of crimes? All right. Before I answer your question, let, let me be clear about Mr. McCabe. 
I don't care whether you're a Republican or a Democrat. If you're at the FBI, you're not supposed to act on it. Mr. McCabe did, and I believe he's one bent two before. Now, number two, Mr. Manafort. Well, sorry, can uh, I just points. clarify number there? One, you in the past have said, I thought, that you supported the Mueller probe. McCabe had helped to set up some of the special counsel there specifically to look at the question of whether the president was Russian I do, I do support the Mueller probe. I do support the Mueller probe, but that doesn't preclude Mr. McCabe from being what he is, a bent to before. Uh, and he hurt the FBI badly. And all the people over there who tried to help Clinton or who tried to help Trump, every one of them should hide his head in the bag. They hurt the premier law enforcement agency in all of human history. And we're going to have to uh, spend a lot of time rehabilitating it. The American people don't trust it as much as they used to. And that's wrong. But you say you and still support the Mueller probe itself. Uh, can you yes, I do. answer yes, the question, I do. though, on, on Paul Manafort? Uh, because Manafort, he was charged points. with an array Manafort, of felonies number, because of the special counsel's case. Number one, number one, I was surprised at his sentence. I thought it would be longer. Uh, number two, uh, as I said in the past, Mr. Manafort is a grifter. Uh, he used to be a partner with, with Roger Stone. Um, um, he's... I'm sorry, Margaret, he's just a sleazoid. I mean, he's always played at the margins. Number three, you know, I, I, rather than just be opinionated, I'd rather be informed. Just Judge Ellis has been on the bench 30 years. I haven't read the sentencing memos. Do you, um, he obviously believed four years was enough. I might disagree with him, but I'd have to read the sentencing memos does first it trouble because there's you? a lot of stuff in there that you and I don't see. Well, lastly, does it trouble you that the president admitted that he had discussed a presidential pardon with Michael Cohen? Should he have been discussing that in an investigation it, he's involved in? It, well, as I understand it, at least part of the story, Margaret, is that Cohen and or his lawyers approached the president and asked for a pardon. The president said it now, happened Mr. directly Cohen, in a direct conversation. That's what the president said. Well, that, that, okay. Um, that Mr. Cohen, once again, in front of Congress, lied then. He said that never happened. Um, and I think with Mr. Cohen, given his checkered past, if he's, if he's breathing, he's lying. But yeah, I mean, I guess I don't blame Cohen for asking. Um, it was inappropriate, but he shouldn't have lied to Congress about it. Senator, good to talk to you today. We'll be right back with our panel. Memories make us laugh and cry and sometimes cringe when we look back at our fashion choices but in between flashbacks of bowl cuts and dad jeans our memories are fading and so is the old media that holds them hi i'm adam baselogger and i'm nick mako and we're the founders of legacy box legacy box is the easiest and safest way to preserve your family memories here's how it works fill legacy box with your outdated media we professionally digitize and send them back on dvds thumb drive or the cloud look those forgotten home movies, VHS tapes, film reels, and photos are degrading right before your eyes. Experience peace of mind and enjoy reliving the glory days. Join more than half a million families who have already trusted Legacy Box. Save your memories today. Visit LegacyBox.com save. And for a limited time, get 40% off your order. That's LegacyBox.com save for 40% off. LegacyBox.com save. We turn now to our panel for some political analysis. David Frum writes for The Atlantic. Susan Glasser covers the presidency and foreign policy for The New Yorker. Jerry Seib is the executive Washington editor for The Wall Street Journal. And Tolu Olernaripa covers the White House for The Washington Post. Tolu, did I get it right? 
You were pretty close. Lorunipa. <laughs> Every time. One of these days I will get it right. Um, let's start off with just some of what we heard here. Uh, two 2020 presidential candidates. And then one of the things you're going to hear a lot about on the, the campaign trail, which is the, you know, food fight over the, the Mueller probe and interpretations around it. Uh, Tolu, what, do you, what did you hear from the candidates? I thought it was really striking to hear uh, Governor Hickenlooper really try to uh, position himself when it came to capitalism versus socialism. He struggled earlier in the week when he was asked about it. He struggled when you asked him about it. He sort of tried to talk about party labels and how labels should not be the focus. But just being able to say, I am a capitalist, when, as you mentioned, Republicans are really trying and going all in on trying to brand Democrats as socialists uh, for a former businessman and a former governor who has not really toyed around with socialist ideas in the past for him to struggle. It shows that the Democrats are really trying to figure out how to approach this issue of whether or not capitalism works. And we heard a little bit about that from Senator Warren. She did uh, say that she does believe in markets and she she does believe that capitalism is a a positive uh, program when you do have the right rules in place. Mm -hmm. But it is when you have Bernie Sanders getting very big crowds, it's hard for uh, Democrats to figure out sort of how to talk about socialism versus capitalism. And they're going to be hit from the right from Republicans and from the president saying that all of them are socialists. Yeah. I, it, As a Republican, I just marvel at how Democrats trip over their own shoelaces on this. We had President Trump tweet that the communist economy of North Korea, under the dynamic leadership of its dictatorial leader, could achieve unprecedented economic growth. <laughs> the president routinely picks favorites among com- companies. Um, he's erecting tariff walls, which are taxes uh, on American exporters. And Democrats can't figure out how to defend a market economy with social insurance programs and let this guy claim the mantle of the champion of free enterprise? Really? So there's a much more um, interesting drama beneath the surface that's going on among Democrats, which is where is the energy in the party? Mm -hmm. Why did we really succeed in 2018? There is a narrative that says we succeeded because the progressive left was full of energy and was out making this happen. We took control of the House because of that. And centrists in the party are going crazy, saying, no, no, that's not what happened in 2018. What happened in 2018 was uh, Republicans, uh, uh, soft Republicans, suburban women in districts that Donald Trump carried in 2016 moved over to our side. These were moderate voters that won the House back for us in 2018 in states like Pennsylvania and and Minnesota um, and Virginia. And those are the people we have to go after. And they're not going to be won over with a socialist message. They're moderates. And those are the people who will make the difference in 2020. That's the debate. It's an interesting uh, theory of the case to go into the California primary advocating for breaking up some of California's biggest businesses, too. What, what do you make of Warren's strategy? There? Well, it's, it, I agree with that. I think there's there's two things to unpack here. One is that Senator Warren is a very accomplished uh, promoter of her ideas and of her ideology. But I think the other thing that's happening in the Democratic Party right now is uh, the Trump style of politics is being introduced. So you have basically the debate of ideas, and, and Jerry's right, there's a huge uh, debate inside the party about the best way to appeal to the voters that they need to appeal to in order to defeat Trump. That it's one debate, but it's not purely about ideas, right? A lot of it is about style, and that's where I think you see the most pronounced shift. Are we headed towards a Tea Party of the left? I think that's what connects the dots between some of what's happening inside Congress this week and what's happening with some of these 2020 candidates. And you see people like John Hickenlooper visibly uncomfortable with the new style of politics. Elizabeth Warren, I think, is a very interesting character, right? Her politics are not wildly different from those of Bernie Sanders, but her style is dramatically different. You know, on your show, I was just struck by how 
calm and measured she is, how very, uh, you know, she is, remember, a former uh, Harvard Law School professor, and she, she a- appears to be that way, and, and it's very different than the sort of Bernie Sanders, you know, shouting politics, and I think that's what fundamentally, uh, as much as ideology, is a conflict around uh, the kind of party. Are we going to have a demagogue of the left to take upon a populist right-wing demagogue, which is what the president of the United States is, basically? Tolu, how do we understand the showdown among House Democrats over uh, Congresswoman Ilhan Omar's remarks? Yeah, House Democrats did not want to spend this week talking about anti-Semitism. They had a, a number of different bills that they were putting through. But because they are struggling with this internecine battle between the progressive stru- the progressives uh, and the base and the moderates and the leadership that is a little bit older, you have uh, religious uh, lines, you have racial lines, you have generational lines that these, the Democrats are struggling over. And they haven't quite figured out how to balance the very diverse class that they have. And I think that's part of the reason you saw uh, Nancy Pelosi wanted to start off with a very tough uh, resolution, specifically uh, comment on Elon Omar's comments. But then she got a lot of pushback from 2020 candidates, from some of the progressive uh, base who said that this was unfairly singling out, uh, you know, a Muslim congresswoman, uh, one of the few African-American women in Congress and one of the few freshmen in Congress. And I think that was part of the reason that they decided to make it a much more broad statement uh, and looked at not only anti-Semitism, but anti-Muslim bigotry and uh, anti-LGBT action. And I think that was part of the reason why the Democrats spent the whole week sort of trying to figure out where they can find some sort of balance in, in the party. And this was red meat for Republicans, certainly the president. He tried to label Democrats anti-Jewish. Um, he, he did try that, which is certainly eyebrow, eyebrow raising. Um, uh, I think what is going on here is that when you have a big intake uh, in, in any party in a year, you, you pick up a lot of people who are ready for prime time and a lot of people who are not. And I think one of the questions that is going to face progressive Democrats is who here wants to be inside the building making the decisions? And who wants to be outside the building carrying the placards? And that people will pick different career paths. And I think you can see from the extraordinarily careful and targeted and self-effacing questioning that Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez did in the uh, Cohen hearings versus the unbelievably undisciplined, repeated, provocative um, uh, remarks of Ilan Omar and the rather sad defenses of her by Democratic leadership. You know, you have to understand she doesn't quite know what words mean. Um, if you don't know what words mean, Congress may be the line, wrong line of work for you. <laughs> well, uh, David, I want to ask you to tee up the piece you just wrote for The Atlantic. Yeah, uh, thank you. Great read. But it's a topic that kind of touches some of these very uh, hot button issues as well, crossing race, crossing uh, a number of things that seem to even divide Democrats. And that is how to deal with the challenge of population growth and influx of people either across the border or just into this country. So one of the things that is a real casualty of the Trump years, the article is about immigration and argue specifically that the United States and other developed countries from a social point of view need less of it, even as their economies are clamoring for more of it. Um, And and the argument of the piece is this is about preserving social stability. What has happened is immigration, and I blame President Trump for this, has become a culture war issue rather than a social stability issue. And so um, it's not a binary question. It's not, you know, open the borders or have none. Um, And it's not something you can, any one country can manage on its own without reference to other countries. Um, Immigration is a system and you have to manage it as a system. And our ability, and when I say our, not just America, but you see this across the developed world to think, 
rationally about things, to, to stand up for the interests of the citizens of the country. That's who you, governments are answer to, not to the world, but to their own citizens. Um, how, do you, how do you do something that um, stands the test and is not just driven um, by the imperatives of business? Uh, the, I think the greatest single line ever written about this problem was written by a um, Swiss writer who said, we wanted workers, we got people instead. And I think we need to understand that you are choosing the future population of your country. If you choose wisely, immigration can be a great source of strength. If you choose poorly, it can rip your society apart and empower the most extreme elements in your own society. And you say this as an immigrant yourself. And I am, I am uh, born in Canada. I was naturalized in 2007. You know, I, I think what everybody knows and nobody will actually acknowledge is that the problem here is in immigration. It's the immigration system is broken. It doesn't work. It hasn't really been uh, upgraded since 1986. If everybody would step back from the emotion, they would agree that what's needed is comprehensive immigration reform, not this many immigrants or that many immigrants. That's not happening. And that's the, that's the problem of the paralysis in this city, I think. Well, it's the death of, you know, uh, technocracy. It's the death of rational policy debate. I mean, you know, you can uh, have all the reasonable, rational arguments you want for immigration reform. It's interesting. I had a conversation the other day with a former senior official in the Bush administration. Was that the key uh, domestic policy failure of the Bush administration, putting aside the Iraq war, uh, was to not pursue comprehensive immigration reform, but to go for social security reform first. I think we'll all look back on that the deal that was available then, obviously, we would be in a very different place in our politics right now had that occurred. The comprehensive immigration reform usually is code for more. And the right answer is less. Um, and that, the right answer is not zero, but the right answer is less, it seems to me. Um, and uh, yes, it's true that technocracy and um, uh, evidence-based decision-making, it's had a bad bunch of innings. And people who advocate this uh, this approach, we have a lot of failures on our hands. I mean, we're watching the Brexit debate. That's a reaction to, you know, the financial crisis and to the euro crisis and euro failures, the failures of the Iraq war and the Bush administration, of which I was a part. Um, but for all those failures, um, prejudice and impulsiveness and uh, yelling at people and, some, and symbols, that has an even worse record than, <laughs> than evidence-based decision-making. Well, uh, immigration can be its own show another day. We have so much more to talk about, but we have to leave it there. Thanks to all of you. Um, We're going to be back with more Face the Nation in just a moment. We're now joined by former Deputy Secretary of State William Burns. He's the author of a new book, The Back Channel, a memoir of American diplomacy and the case for its renewal. Welcome to Face the Nation. Margaret, it's great to be with you. I hope this isn't saying that American diplomacy is dead. No, it's not dead at all. In fact, I think it matters more than ever on today's international landscape, which is a lot more crowded and competitive in some ways than ever before. My concern is just that I think we're drifting right now, and that's the case for renewing diplomacy. Well, I I want to ask you specifically on the topic of Russia, because you spent a lot of time in Russia. You speak Russian. And you had a number of documents declassified for the book that you wrote, um, revealing private conversations you had. And one of them, you write about a one-on-one you had with Vladimir Putin in 2007. It stands out because he essentially, to you, to your face, threatened the U.S., Uh, if the U.S. interfered in their election, saying, don't think we won't react to outside interference. In hindsight, was that 
a preview of what happened in 2016? It was a little bit of a preview, I think. You know, I mean, Putin um, is a very combustible combination, I think, of grievance and ambition and insecurity. And he's convinced that the United States has been trying to undermine um, his regime and the Kremlin, you know, going back to the color revolutions in Ukraine and Georgia 15 years ago. Now, the truth, of course, is, is those revolutions were about Ukrainians and Georgians, not Americans. But Putin came to the conviction um, that we were out to undermine him. And Putin, in my experience, is an apostle of payback. And so when he saw an opportunity in 2016 to take advantage of dysfunction and polarization in our own political system and interfere and sow chaos, um, he took advantage of it. You talk a lot about the Trump administration towards the end of the book. And when it comes to Vladimir Putin, you basically say the president has a very wrong-headed approach to think that flattery or trying to be friends with Putin is going to get him anywhere. No, I mean, I think foreign policy diplomacy, as you well know, is about advancing American interests. It's not about getting along with people. And I think if you saw the, you know, the summit press conference between Trump and Putin uh, in Helsinki, what you saw was, you know, a really embarrassing attempt by President Trump to ingratiate himself with Putin and throw his own intelligence and law enforcement agencies under the bus. I think Putin reads that as a sign of manipulability, a sign of weakness um, that he'll try to take advantage of. Now, I, I want to point out to our viewers, because, you know, you're, you're not a talking head. You're a career diplomat. Right. You did this for 33 years, five presidents, 10 secretaries of state you served under. You speak Russian, you speak Arabic, you speak French. You've got slew of awards from the intel community and the State Department. And they lay that out to, to say you were very careful in choosing your words. And when you write about the Trump administration, you say, it has diminished American influence on a shifting international landscape, hollowed out American diplomacy, and only deepened the divisions among Americans about our global role. Has the president hurt U.S. national security? Oh, I, I'm concerned that just as I wrote in the book, that what you're seeing in this administration, especially from President Trump himself, is a worldview and a set of actions that are undermining our stature and our influence in the world. And it has real corrosive effect right now, I think. The truth is, President Trump didn't invent a lot of the problems on that landscape or a lot of concerns within our own society. But I think he's making them worse right now, too. This is a moment when the United States is no longer the only big kid on the geopolitical block. It's a moment when diplomacy, when our alliances, our capacity for building coalitions of countries, what sets us apart from lonelier powers like China and Russia, is more important than ever. And my concern is that we're squandering those assets right now. Do you applaud his attempt at diplomacy with North Korea? I do. I think I think the effort, including the effort to engage directly with North Korea's leader, is started out as an admirable effect. I think the concern I have right now is that in the second summit meeting in Hanoi, we're giving Kim Jong-un an unearned boost in his stature. And I think we need to take advantage of the disappointment in Hanoi to reset our approach on North Korea. Now, you helped lead the back-channel talks that began the secret negotiations mm -hmm. with Iran that ultimately led to the nuclear deal. President Trump pulled out of that. Uh, it still exists in some form, with the Europeans at least. Um, what happens next to that deal? Do you see the U.S. on a trajectory to have a direct clash with Iran? Yeah, my concern is that, you know, given the law of inadvertent collisions, 
we can bang into the Iranians or our allies and friends can. There's so many combustible parts of the landscape in the Middle East right now. And that can set off a chain of escalation that can be very difficult to control. I do think it was a huge mistake to pull out of the Iran deal. I think it was the best of the available alternatives to prevent Iran from developing a nuclear weapon. And I think pulling out has added to the fissures between us and our closest European allies. In a way, it's done Vladimir Putin's work for him. Um, And I think it's also eroded the long-term value of sanctions as an instrument of American foreign policy, simply because by unilaterally pushing for sanctions rather than working with our partners, you know, we open up another area of vulnerability. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure. Thanks so much. The book is The Back Channel by Bill Burns. That's it for us today. Thank you for watching. Until next week, from Face the Nation, I'm Margaret Brennan. Today's guests were Democratic presidential candidates Elizabeth Warren, John Hickenlooper, along with former FBI Deputy Director Andrew McCabe, plus Louisiana Republican Senator John Kennedy. The executive producer of Face the Nation is Mary Hager. This broadcast was directed by Allison Hawley. Face the Nation originates from CBS News in Washington. For more Face the Nation, we're online at facethenation.com, and you can follow the show and CBS News on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Face the Nation is also rebroadcast on our digital network, CBSN, at 11 a.m., 3 p.m., and 6 p.m. Eastern every Sunday. If you like Face the Nation with Margaret Brennan, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at Wondery.com survey. The Hargan women seem to have it all. From the outside looking in, we were blessed. My mom was amazing. But as detectives would soon learn, there was a lot going on inside the Hargan household. Ashley and I have been calling my mom and the house and Helen. Okay. No one's answering. 63-year-old Pamela Hargan gunned down in her own home. Her youngest daughter, Helen, lay dead upstairs. Patrol, when they arrived, assumed or thought that there might have been a murder-suicide. But for the detectives on the scene... There were things about the scene itself that were concerning to us on day one. Who would want to kill their mother and their little sister? There is no boogeyman here. It is exactly who we think it is. I'm Peter Vance Sat from 48 Hours. This is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings, wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, CBS News business analyst, certified financial planner, and host of the Money Watch podcast. This is the show where your money is not scary. It is a show that's all about you. It's your questions that make it possible for me to provide unconventional and entertaining insights on your money and maybe more importantly, on your life. Follow Money Watch wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free on the Amazon Music or Wondery app.